If you have your Bible today, turn with me to Matthew 26. We're going to begin at verse 69. Today we're going to talk about a second chance. Have you ever had a second chance? I guess all of us had one time or another along the way. We're going to talk about that this morning. Verse 69, now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a maid came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean, but he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he set out to the porch, another maid saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you also are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the cock crowed. The Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. The name Dale Carnegie is not associated with failure. We all have heard that name. We know that name. It's a name that we grew up with. Uh, this was a man who began a public speaking class. Start out with one class, and then he started teaching two classes, and then three, and then four, and then five. And then he trained some people to teach other people. And then those people uh, got a lot out of it, and he trained some of them to teach some more people. And you could see the progression, and literally his style and substance went all over the world. And thousands and thousands of classes were started teaching people how to do public uh, speaking. Well, that man also wrote a book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Did you know that that book sold over 15 million copies? It's one of the most read books in the history of our country. Yet in early life, everything Carnegie did was wrong. He failed at this, at this, at this, at this, at this, all the way along the line. There was a sense of failure which grew out of his poverty. He came from a very, very poor family. The only way that he could go to college was to live at home because he certainly couldn't pay uh, to live at the school. The only way uh, he could get there was to go on horseback. He was one of four students out of a student population of over 800 at the Teachers College in Warrensburg, Missouri, where they were so poor they had to live at home. He decided he could make a name for himself if he could win the Speakers Contest. And so he entered at the State Teachers College. He entered over a dozen times, and he lost every time. He failed. He just failed. He worked hard for four years to complete his college degree at Teachers College, but his senior year he failed Latin, and therefore he didn't graduate. He never graduated. He failed. Carnegie went to New York City, 
and he spent all the money that he'd saved up for an interest fee to acting school. He landed one part, which kept him occupied for about two months. And then he never got another part, never did. He went to the place where they announced a a call for this or a call for that, and every day for him it was the same. Sorry, nothing here for you today. He was an utter failure at acting. Finally, as a last resort, he applied for a job at the YMCA, teaching people how to do public speaking. Because of his lack of experience, the YMCA would not give him the usual salary for night school teachers of $2 a session. Instead, he was given a trial run on a profit-sharing basis. If he did well, he would make a little bit of money. If not, he'd lose his job. That's the way they set it up. Well, from such an inauspicious beginning, Carnegie rose to fame of one of the most effective trainers of public speakers of all time and one of the most read authors of all time in America. Two keys enabled him to turn failure into success. His unwillingness to be stopped by failure and his willingness to learn from failure. Again and again and again, Dale Carnegie got a second chance. Today, we're going to talk about getting a second chance. Aren't you glad that you, along the way, have had a second chance at this or at that or the other thing? The first time I got up at a softball game to bat, I struck out. I mean, I missed it a yard, it seemed like. And my friends were kind of snickering. And I felt terrible. And when I got back over to the dugout, the coach said, you'll be back up in about three inches, give it innings, give it another chance. And so that's what I did. I got a second chance. You have probably heard about the lady that fell in love with this fellow at second sight. She didn't know that he was rich the first time she saw him. She got a second chance. (laughs) Peter is often thought to have been the original narrator of the passion story, or at least the scenes where he was present. It's sometimes argued that he alone would be likely to tell the shameful story of how he denied our Lord. At the time... The real moral of the story was the richness of God's grace, of God's love, of God's forgiveness. That's the real important thing in our text today. The disciple who showed himself so craven was nevertheless a first-time witness, the first witness of the resurrection, and became the rock apostle, a pillar of the early church. He was the one everybody began to look to. They said, he, there's Peter. He's, he's our leader. And they looked to him. He was faithful. He was there. He was steady in prayer. He was steady in witness. 
He was steady in all the things that make a Christian really significant for the Lord Jesus. He was the rock, the rock, the pillar of the early church. In verse 69, it says that Peter was in the courtyard or the atrium rather than in the palace and a maid, probably one of the household servants, just a, just a common girl, really. She came up to him and said something that he didn't like, said something that might get him into trouble, said something that might cause him to be put in prison, that might even cost him his life. In verse 73, Peter's accent was obviously Galilean. This morning, does everybody know where you're from by your accent? Bet you didn't know I was from New York City, did you? <laughs> the Aramaic of Galilee, like the Arabic spoken there today, has dialectical uh, peculiarities. Let's say it that way. People would know where you were from, where you were specifically from. And they all knew it. He couldn't hide it. Verses 69 through 75 are really a story, the story of the denial of his Lord by the Apostle Peter. While Jesus was being tried before Caiaphas, Peter was also being tried. Jesus was mocked, mocked by earthly men, suffered a more cruel mockery in the faithlessness of a friend. Jesus had taught Peter to deny himself, but he didn't do that. When it came time to really stand up, he didn't deny himself. He denied the Lord. It was horrible. It was terrible. Peter himself must have told the story, and that fact does him honor. He was not so proud that he couldn't write it down. Because it had a great story to tell about the grace and the mercy of our Lord. The honesty and his Lord's redeeming trust in him are the very reason why Peter rose to be the acknowledged leader of the apostles. He was strong for the Lord. He failed at first, like Dale Carnegie, but then he got it together. He found his niche, he found his place, he found his witness. He took a strong stand for the Lord Jesus. Peter was caught unawares by the servant girl's question. Why in the world, he thought, is she asking this in front of these other people? This is going to get me in a lot of trouble. He was not without excuse. They had been staying up late at night. They had been worried. They had been praying that everything would work out well, and it seemed like everything had gone wrong. He was physically tired. His guard was down. The cause of Jesus, in some ways, seemed like it was coming to an end. The soldiers came and got him and took him away. And Peter was worried that they were going to come and get him and take him away. It was a scary time. And it was going through the, the thought 
process with all the disciples. Is it over? We've been following him for three and a half years. Is it over? He's now in the hands of the soldiers. He might be put into prison for the rest of his life. He might be crucified. He might be killed. Is it over? And they begin to wonder. And they begin to fumble. And they begin to fail. And they begin to have doubts. He was tempted to despair. You know, sometimes in life we have things that go wrong. It seems like whichever way we turn is wrong. We have social failure. We have financial failure. We have relational failure. We have health failure. And this goes on and that goes on and it seems like it builds up upon us. And all of a sudden we fail. And then really the only place that we have to turn is toward our loving Lord. And he's there for us. He's there for us. And he forgives us. And he lifts us up by the strength of his will. Well, he did some things right. He followed Jesus into the courtyard of Caiaphas. That took some real courage to do that. He could have been forewarned of the test that was coming. He probably would have done a much better job if he had known that question was coming. He probably would have kept the faith and not denied his Savior. As Jesus so often told his followers, temptation comes like a thief in the night. You know, that's when it comes to us. You know, it comes and gets us when we're not looking at it. When we're looking in another direction, here it comes, like a thief in the night. How should we guard against the sudden test? Well, there's no way to guard against it because it comes. And if we are trained in the ways of God, if we are trying to demonstrate our faith in God, when the tests come, we're willing to stand up. We're willing to say the right thing, to do the right thing, to be the right example. We're willing to do all that. One lie, in his case, led to another. It would have gone on into chaos if the deepening curse had not been stopped by Christ himself. Aristotle said that the penalty of telling a lie is that the liar is not believed when he finally tells the truth. All confidence is broken, and soon there is no bond among men if one lies. First, a denial. That's what Peter did first. And then he gave a denial with an oath. And then he gave a denial with curses. He began cursing. He was really going the wrong way. I mean, just as fast as you can go the wrong way. That's what he was doing. Peter was betrayed, like every sinner, by an inner torment. He was caught up at last by that look from the Lord Jesus. That look was his undoing. 
And he went out, the scripture says, and burst into tears. Do you remember that time when you were growing up and you had practiced to do something for a long time and your parents were all behind you and they were clapping for you and proud of you and all that and then when it came to time to do whatever it was you were supposed to do, you just blew it. You did a terrible job. Do you remember that? And you looked over at your parents and you hoped they weren't looking. And your daddy or your mom had their head kind of down and they were kind of shaking their heads like, how could you have done such a terrible job? And it just hurts you to the quick. And it's stuck in your brain all these years. Has there been that time when in front of your husband or your wife, you just messed up? And you glanced over at them and in the middle of it, your husband or your wife was just (laughs) kind of showing the disappointment without saying anything. Do you remember that time? You remember the time in front of your kids when you did or said the wrong thing? And even your kids knew (laughs) that that was wrong. Well, the quick penitence of Peter became him. The story is told to point to the grace by which he was restored. That's the main part of the story. He was wiser than Judas. He wept, but then he made a confession. And then he found peace. Thus, the truth of the resurrection was especially granted to the man who had denied his Lord. He became a rock in fact, not just in verbiage, not just in admiration. He became a rock in every way for the Lord Jesus. That's why the story is told, that we may know that our denials need not to be the last word, because Christ is all about pardon. And Christ is all about forgiveness. That's what he's about. We get, guess what, a second chance. Has there been that moment when you had an obvious open door in front of a bunch of people to give a testimony of your faith? And you just kind of let it slip by. Has there been that time over the phone when someone asked you a very pointed question and it was an obvious time for you to take a stand for Jesus and you said, why don't you go talk to our preacher? Or why don't you go talk to one of the deacons? Or why don't you go talk to your neighbor? Or why don't you look it up on the internet? I tell you... (laughs) We've all taken the wrong stand at some point. And praise God, the Lord forgave us for it. And he called us back into his inner circle. And he put his hand of love upon us. And he showered his grace in our direction. Dwight L. Moody was an acclaimed evangelist. Robert Ingersoll was an agnostic lawyer. Both died 
1899. Both were raised in a Christian home. Both were skilled speakers. Both traveled extensively all over the world and were widely respected for their teaching ability. Both drew immense crowds wherever they spoke. But there was a distinct difference in their relationship to Almighty God. Ingersoll was an agnostic to whom the Bible was just a bunch of fables who scorned religion at every opportunity. Moody was an evangelist who had given his life to the service of God. And he believed and preached the word of God, every word of it, every chapter of it, every book of it, the total significance of it. He never uh, refused to take a stand for the veracity of the word of God. He was one that proclaimed it as he believed it. And because they were so different, in the way that the two lived, they were also different in the way that they died. Ingersoll died suddenly, and the news stunned his family. The wife didn't want the body to be taken out of the house. You know, people began to say to her, we need to take the body out. And finally the people came for health reasons, And even though the wife was reluctant to let it go, she had to because of the health issues. Ingersoll remains were cremated. And the response to his death was meager, was dismal. Maybe a paragraph here, a paragraph there. Moody awoke on the morning of December 22nd. In 1899, a time after he had been very, very ill for weeks, he had sort of been in and out of consciousness. He said, when he woke up on that day, earth is receding, heaven is opening up right in front of him. His son, Will, was there at the foot of the bed. They had had family members there around the clock to be with their father. And he was there. And as as Dwight L. sped that, as he stood up and finally said that, his son stood beside him and said, Dad, Dad, you were just dreaming. You, You were just having some dreams. No, said Moody, this was no dream. It is beautiful. If this is death, it is very Very sweet. The family gathered around the bed to celebrate his release from his earthly body. The funeral service reflected the same joy, the same confidence, as his loved ones gathered together to sing praises to God. There was an enormous crowd at the funeral because he had meant so much to so many for so long. Many remembered his words earlier that year when Dwight L. Moody had said, you know, one day you're going to get up and you're going to look in the paper and it's going to say that Dwight L. Moody is dead. He said, don't you believe it. Don't believe a word of it. 
at that moment I shall be more alive than I have ever been before. I was born in the flesh in 1837. I was born in the spirit in 1855. And that which is born of the flesh is going to die. But that which is born of the spirit shall live forever. What a difference God makes. We all have been given a second chance. And it comes and comes again because we need it. In all of history, the history of redemption, very few saints have fallen to the depths of sin and unfaithfulness that Peter did during those days denying his Savior. Yet few saints have been so powerfully used by God as Peter was after he repented and was restored to the grace of God. The account of his denial is a sobering testimony to the weakness of the flesh, but it is an encouraging testimony to the power of God's love. Even in the event of God's children's sin, the Lord is there to forgive and to restore. In the courtyard, Peter at first was giving loud protests, and then he calmed down when he realized what might happen to him, and those protests were no longer heard, and the arrogant hero shriveled into a cringing coward. His self-preserving instincts prevailed, and his boldness evaporated. A person's involuntary response to the unexpected is a more reliable indicator of his character than his planned reaction to a situation which he had anticipated. If we are caught off guard, our true nature is most likely to show itself. Peter's proud self-confidence was his Achilles heel. Peter's stubborn trust in himself and his unwillingness to fully, now I mean fully, trust in the Lord Jesus made him vulnerable to the simple taunt of a young, single girl. Verse 75 says, He went out and he wept bitterly. The true Peter is not seen in his denial, but in his repentance, the first stage of which was a deep remorse. Finally realizing the grievousness of his sin, he turned from it in revulsion. Like Judas, he fled into the night, but unlike Judas, he returned to the Lord in faith. His faith had slipped. It had weakened. There's no question about that. But it was a genuine faith. And Jesus himself had prayed that it would not fail. Peter went out and wept bitterly, the scripture says. We're not told where he went or how long he stayed. He might have gone to the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember just a bit ago, just a short time before these events, he was out there with the inner circle with the Lord himself, and the Lord had asked them to pray. 
Peter thought, well, you know, I've prayed a whole lot today. I don't need to pray anymore. I'm tired. And he went to sleep. He went sound asleep just after Jesus had ordered him to pray. He might have gone back to that place where now he felt a deep need to pray. Wherever it was, it became a private place of prayer, a place of confessing sin and seeking forgiveness. So many people today need to find that place and confess their sins and seek their forgiveness. We have an opportunity day by day by day to take a strong stand for Jesus. I want us to to do something a little differently today. In a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing a hymn. And I'm going to invite people to trust in Christ that have never done that. I'm going to invite people that have been coming to the church that have decided to join, to come forward, to take a stand, and give a great testimony for the Lord Jesus as they do that. But also, I want to pray this morning that every person in the room, every one of you, would take this moment to say, Father, if I fail, or Father, for my last failure, I want to ask for your forgiveness. I pray that these next few moments would be a time of real redemption. Where we would draw very, very close to our Savior. And every one of us would rededicate our lives to him who died for us. Would you do that? Would you take the second chance that Jesus would offer to you today? I'll be standing down here in the front for those that would like to come and take a stand for him in these moments. Let's stand together as we sing.